Hello and welcome to Designer's Voice, audio conversations on design which inform, challenge and inspire. I'm Alice Bryan, a designer and editor with over 20 years experience in design. There are rare occasions, perhaps in a coffee shop, when you sit next to people and you get the opportunity to listen in to their conversations and you get to hear what they have to say unedited and learn from their expertise and opinions. Now imagine that that is a conversation on a topic that you would really like to learn more about. And that is exactly what is going to happen in this audio recording. Today, I'll be guiding the conversation and nudging it along so that we can eavesdrop together. Each episode of Designer's Voice is recorded in a different location, and I'm absolutely delighted that today we're recording in Gitta Gusfetner's London studio. I'm also delighted that I have two fantastic guests designer Gitta Gusvetna and architect Summer Islam. And before I hand the conversation over to Summer and Gitta, I'd like to introduce my guests in a little more detail. Gitta Gusvetna is an installation, exhibition and furniture designer known for her conceptually rigorous, visually intriguing and functional designs. When my family and I visited the London Science Museum post-COVID, we were entirely absorbed by Science City, a permanent gallery exploring how science shaped London from 1550 to 1800, designed by Gitter in 2019. This is not the only client of Gitter's, which you will recognise. She has also worked with the V&A, the Wellcome Trust, the British Council, the British Museum, the South Bank Centre, Guy's Hospital, the National Trust and many more. Gitter's ability to interpret stories through her work has led to the design of many captivating pieces, including her chair bench for the V&A Furniture Gallery and a series of my favourite designs, her uncanny lamps, which are also in the V&A collection. I first met Gitter when she was my second year tutor at university and I was extremely lucky to learn from Gitter as well as her longtime collaboration partner, Carl Clarkin. Currently on Gitter's desk is her work for the Urban Nature Project for the Natural History Museum, along with the 3D interpretation designs for their gardens due to open in 2024. My second guest today is Summer Islam, a founding director of Material Cultures, a not-for-profit organisation which brings together design, material research and high-level strategic thinking to make meaningful progress towards a post-carbon built environment. The design team provide design services working with the public, private and third-party organisations interested in developing and delivering a regenerative, low-carbon built environment. Summer's work with Material Cultures spans design and research work. Summer also has educational experience with University of the Arts London and teaching at the Bartlett University College London, London Met and the University of Cambridge. Material Cultures Design Research was articulated through their book, Material Cultures Material Reform, published in 2022. I have my copy just here. Today, we'll learn more about Summer's expertise in design, including exhibition design, which moves our thought and practices forwards in designing for a post-carbon future. 
Welcome to Designer's Voice, Gitter and Summer. Now, perhaps we will begin today's conversation. I'd like to ask Gitter, could you perhaps talk us through how the conversation of sustainability is currently positioned in exhibition design? Um, I think we've come to a point now where everybody realizes that the way temporary exhibitions have been done in the past is incredibly unsustainable. And I think both designers and institutions and contractors are keen to change this. Is that your experience too, Summer? Yeah, I definitely think the institutions have a, a real will to change and improve their practices. Um, I think my experience and our experience in the practice of maybe how that um, will is carried through the supply chain probably varies from contractor to contractor and, and maybe also from institution to institution, ultimately affecting sustainability uh, or kind of implementing sustainability in large scale institutions costs a lot of money today because lots of the systems and mechanisms that you might need for it to work aren't in place. And so I guess we found that maybe some of the smaller institutions maybe don't necessarily have um, as much resource at their disposal uh, to do those things properly. But our experience of working with the design museum uh, was very good. I think they had lots of um, will from all the way through kind of from the head curator down to the um, team working the um, exhibition installation to maybe do something that was really um, special and also kind of groundbreaking in terms of the way that this particular exhibition I'm talking about, which is uh, sorry called the way stage at the design museum, the way that was implemented. I'd be keen to hear more about that. When I've, I went to the exhibition and I looked at all the sort of documentation online and it sounded really interesting. Is it something that, you yeah. know, all the, all of the projects are struggling with? So when we started working for the Design Museum, we were given a brief to design an exhibition which was in itself inherently sustainable, but also to work with some of the materials that they had inherited from a previous exhibition. So there was a Charlotte Perrion show, which came before... Um, the wastage show and so there were lots of um blocks and some other materials and there were also some partition walls which were already installed in the gallery which were kind of not necessarily permanent but had cost some money and resource to implement and they basically said please could you design the exhibition and do as little as you can to those existing kind of bits of infrastructure and so that was a really interesting brief to start with I think we've never been approached um by any kind of art institution to take on a show like that. And then from there, we were working with them. We had to set up criteria for making decisions, you know, like, well, there were things we thought we would like to do for the design of the exhibition, which was centered around the problem of waste. So it was a very clear kind of curatorial brief for us as designers, but we needed some new materials. We needed to create some um, spaces that had different lighting quality or maybe they um, behaved in different ways or plinth at different heights. And so we had to pick some stuff to start with. And that was uh, really interesting because we made a kind of material pyramid. In fact, we drew from this very um, useful resource called the Material Pyramid, which was made by a research institute um, called Synarch. And they have a t an online tool where you can uh, sort out materials based on their global warming potential. So we looked at what could we source maybe from within the UK, what bio-based materials, which had inherently low embodied carbon, we could work with and kind of rearranged our own material pyramid and sort of looked at materials in a matrix based on like what their embodied carbon, how much they cost, which is obviously a factor for any client, um, where they came from, what they were made of, 
what we would do them at their end of life, which is also like a huge question, I think, um, because you can make very good things out of bio-based materials, but you still have to find somewhere to put them after. And storage was a whole thing, which I think we could talk about probably for about a whole hour. Um, and so then we took that uh, to the design museum and worked with them and said, well, these are materials we think would be beautiful. Um, this is the implication of working with them. And kind of through that process, sort of back and forth, showing how those materials were employed in maybe other installations, we kind of whittled them down to a palette and then worked within the frames of that palette. And that was really productive, really interesting. And you've also had a sustainability consultant, didn't you, which is something that I'm very interested in. So you got some hard data afterwards to see whether it all worked? Yeah, so we worked with um, an organisation called Urge, who are really interesting, and they supported us um, through the project. And I think uh, that was really valuable for us and it established a working relationship with Urge, uh, who we think are really excellent, that's sustained. Um, for example, when we worked on the book um, that Alice was talking about, Material Reform, we worked with Urge to do an environmental audit of the process of making the book. Mm -hmm. So they audited not just the materials the book is made of and the inks and where the paper came from, but also our time in writing the book and how many emails we sent back and forth. And that was the same, um, they used those same tools in the Design Museum in the Waystage show. So, you know, we sent them a record of how many emails were sent and we stopped using um attachments in our emails and started thinking about the embodied carbon of the communication as well, um, which is a whole other level. Um, and we sort of thought about, and we documented how many visits back and forth to site we'd taken and all of that was factored into the, to the calculations. And it was really, really interesting. I think, um, or I know in fact that they were employed subsequently by the design museum to do a kind of audit of the process and, you know, see how successful it was and where it failed and where it was really good. And I think there were, Limitations within the institution at the time. I don't know what your experiences of um, of working on similar well, on projects with similar values. Maybe working to be as sustainable as possible. You know, there's ambition, and then there's the infrastructure to support that ambition, and they don't always match up. Um, I definitely think there were things that could have been done better in that exhibition. Um, primarily around the construction process. I think actually like factoring. Uh, enough time in for decision making, enough time in for storing stuff. Um, and, you know, the Design Museum is a really big institution in some ways. They have lots of space, but they also don't have that much space in reality. And there's one loading bay and stuff going in and out has to go in and out very quickly. So, I don't know. What's your um, recent experience been of working on projects where you mentioned two exhibitions earlier where there was kind of a drive to be sustainable. Yeah, I've, I've just recently did two consecutive exhibitions for the Natural History Museum. They're part of a program where they're showing fine art that, that kind of concerns itself with sustainability um, in the museum, which is quite new for them. And the Natural History Museum overall is very keen to be sustainable. I mean, that's kind of the remit mm -hmm. as a museum. Um, and so as part of the brief, um, I've been trying to make um, sustainable decisions. It wasn't as... Um, formally structured as your project. So there wasn't a sustainability consultant. So it was more about kind of trying to understand myself what kind of decision making would be better. And so for the first one, um, the gallery itself is, is very large, a large high ceiling Victorian gallery and the objects themselves maybe not that large. I needed some volume. So you, I needed to, I mean, the, the first thing you want to do ideally is to reduce. But in a way I, I couldn't reduce because the stuff would have been lost. So it needed the design. 
Um, but how how can I build something relatively large without being wasteful? So yeah. I, I looked at scaffolding, but trying to use scaffolding in a different way because you don't want it to look like a cliche, but obviously it is something that's being used endlessly afterwards. So it's a circular economy makes a lot of sense, even though steel normally in your pyramid would not be a good material. Um, so I, I, I built scaffold structures and then, and then clad them with some um, Velcroed fabric to make it quite lightweight. Um, nice. And it, it worked really well. It gave us quite, quite dramatic volumes and hopefully not such a huge footprint. Um, but I, they're, they're still working on trying to calculate the carbon impact. And so I, I don't have a kind of clear answer whether or not this has been like miles better than any other build or not. So that, that that's the next step really. Yeah. But that's really interesting because I don't know if you'll know that. Yeah. No one's really audited all the exhibitions of the past. Have yeah. they? I mean, you could go about that work and undertake a kind of retrospective analysis. You'd have to do a lot of guessing, yeah. probably some kind of material evidence of what's been used. But the, the difficult thing actually, or the interesting thing when we did that analysis on the design museum show, and I actually shamefully can't remember the figures now, but we were presented with the the emissions to do the exhibition and we hadn't got anything to compare it with. Mm. And that's why in the media, they, they do these comparisons where they say, well, this was very bad. It was like taking a flight back and forth to New York 20 times, yeah. because that's a metric that we can, yeah, yeah, yeah. Have, we have some kind of relative understanding of. And, um, but so the more and more people do this and do mm. that kind of work that you're doing, the better it, the process will be and the easier it will be to understand where there were successes and where there were failures. Exactly. I think, and this is where, this is why I think it's in its infancy because we, it's a learning process. And so the second exhibition in that pro, in that um, lineup um, is a photography exhibition, quite different, but again, needed a, a fair amount of structure. The scaffolding didn't seem right in this, in this case. And so I tried something different. I did a very lightweight um, timber structure with FSC timber and then clad it in cotton fabric and uh, design it in units that can be um, disassembled and reused in the future. Um, worked well from a design point of view, but again, I'm waiting for the data now. So, mm -hmm. so now we've got two very similar exhibitions. They're both fine art in, in this museum, um, reusing as much material from the museum, like showcases stuff as possible. Mm -hmm. um, and be, so at least there's two things to compare. So once the, once the figures are in, I'd be really interested to see what that means. But until then. Yeah, who knows? It's, it's guesswork. <laughs> but also that you talked about design for disassembly. Do you know what what's happened to those bits mm. that, that that have been disassembled? Has it happened yet? It hasn't happened yet. The okay. show is on until November. Okay. So so there is there was talk of doing another photography sh show in the space afterwards, but I think that's not happening now. But maybe there's something else that will come up. But again, then once once the things are disassembled, if there isn't a show immediately, will they have the storage space for it? I mean, yeah. I have obviously thought about the end of life if it doesn't get reused. I mean, it can be the timber can be taken apart and reused, or it can be um, turned into chipboard or biofuel. So there are routes, but each route it kind of has got different implications. Yeah, and the labour associated with that as well, yeah. which we talked about earlier. Yeah. But um, you know, whose time is it? whose time is resourced to do that work and yeah. it sounds like that's often something that you've undertaken yourself mm. but presumably that's work that's been unpaid and unacknowledged mm. but you know if institutions want to take this stuff seriously they need to factor in well okay we've asked you to design something that's disassemblable or whatever and that's a really good idea but if we can't store it mm. someone needs to have the time to figure out where it goes because even chipping something I mean chipping something is maybe the, like the lowest common denominator approach because it's the easiest thing for them to do and say it was sustainable but actually it's not because the most sustainable thing about using timber is that you keep the carbon sequestered in it 
Mm. So then chipping it and burning it or whatever uh, kind of undermines a lot of the biogenic carbon benefits you get in your calculations. Yeah. But I had a, I had an interesting conversation with um, the head of design at the V&A recently, Yvonne McKenzie, and she said that basically what needs to happen is that, you know, we've got QS on the, on the project who's constantly calculating how much things cost and then tells you to VE it down. Yeah. They need to have sort of like a QS for carbon yeah, yeah. Who, who then kind of constantly, because it's, it's nice to kind of find out at the end of the project, but really du- during the design exactly, process, yeah. you should really know like, oh, this is the wrong decision. This is the right decision. Yeah. And, and how can you change this? And I think that would really be the way forward. Yeah, expensive, but yeah, super necessary, expensive, but really important. Yeah, we tr- we tried to do that on this project we're working on in Scotland on the Isle of Bute, where we're working with um, an environmental consultant or M and E consultant uh, called Max Fordham's, and they did some dynamic modelling for us. So whilst we were designing for tender, we put a few options forward, and the idea was that they would give us embodied carbon of those different details. Mm. And then we would change the way we detailed a roof structure, for example. Um, and it's a really good idea, but again, actually. I think in reality, we got the data maybe a bit too late. We made a decision. Mm. We'd had to move on. The program hadn't allowed it. It did inform the project ultimately, but that's what I mean about, um, I guess, resourcing things and allowing time for those things. It's just something I think that maybe hasn't really been talked about very much in the kind of context of these things, because let's say you do this amazing dynamic modeling of an exhibition design. It turns out, you know, for whatever reason, maybe not um, out of kind of poor intent, but the design is very carbon heavy. Mm. Something's happened to a supply chain and actually it's turned out to be a terrible idea to work with wood, which sometimes it can be. Mm. Um, you've got to start again. Yeah. And they've got to have, they've got to be all right with that, that you've got the time to do that work again and, and maybe be paid to continue to do that work. And I think, you know, where exhibitions are programmed back to back, and there's an extreme pressure on design teams. It's very difficult. Um, but there are like digital tools, I think, that have been developed that will make that easier and easier in time. But um, yeah, it's kind of, we're in our infancy, definitely. Yeah. Sorry to interrupt the conversation, but I just want to come in here and take a moment to tell you that Designer's Voice is a monthly audio series and it's actually a self-funded project, which is why it's so important that I thank all of the speakers who have and will take part in the series. I also want to ask you for a little bit of your help. If you're enjoying the conversation here today, please do share it with anybody that you know that is interested in design. And please pop over to Instagram and follow us there at Designer's Voice. I wonder if this is already happening or whether it's uh, too early days, but is there any sort of standardization in the data that's being gathered in order to enable the comparison? I mean, my experience might be a bit different from yours because the things that I'm counting are uh, very countable, like bricks. (laughs) Um, There are definitely standards in construction and there's kind of guidance methodology for how embodied carbon is calculated. Um, And that makes it quite comparable in some cases, I think, um, I imagine it changes a bit when your material palette um, shifts from maybe a kind of standardized construction product, something which is proprietary. And we find that because we work with natural materials, things which don't exist in the database don't exist in a way. And you have to find the data to plug into a model. Um, but I think with textiles, with objects, with stuff in uh, exhibition design and curation, I think it can be much more complex. I can't really imagine how you'd go about assessing the supply chain of something like a light or a chair <laughs> um, because they're made of so many bits. Um, 
And I think that's, that's one of the issues. And I think even when you, when you look outside of like national boundaries, it becomes really complex. Um, there's a really good, um, climate action network group called the ACAN. They're the Architects Climate Action Network. Um, and they're a group of volunteers campaigning for change in construction. And they have these WhatsApp groups. And I, I listen into the WhatsApp groups, maybe a bit like this chat. And they were posting recently about the fact that life cycle carbon analysis, so kind of whole life cycle of something in a, like a building, varies drastically between different countries. So the methodology is different in different places because different things are counted in. So if you compare a building in the UK with one in I don't know the Netherlands, um, the way the carbon in those two things was counted was very different. And so actually they're not comparable. And I imagine even within, I'm sure within national boundaries, like people are doing things differently, but like it makes it very difficult, I think, for data to be transferred. And supply chains for objects are global, obviously. So um, it's a kind of data minefield, I think, the whole thing. And someone needs to be responsible for counting. Um, I don't know, what's your experience been like? Have you had the audits yet? On You haven't had the audits yet, but are they going to audit all of your things on the Natural History Museum project, for example? Um, I think they're trying to, but it's an interesting one because the, the Natural History Museum Urban Nature Project is a large project which has got landscape architects, J.L. Gibbons and... Uh, architects and um, field and fouls involved, and I'm just doing a small, small role with a 3D interpretation. And the the overall project is um, net zero, mm-hmm. um, and they've got Mace as a sustainability consultant calculating constantly and trying to make sure that we stay on track. And I think it's much more straightforward for the landscape and for the architecture. And for my bits, it's a lot more complicated because they are, they are, you know, it's it's harder to punch into a model that doesn't exist, and yeah. it's, it's a little bit like your natural materials and it yeah. has so many components in the things that I make. Yeah. Um, so we, we're working on it, but it's slower. I mean, like one thing that we were able to calculate is the foundation for the graphics. Yeah. And um, I work with them to kind of make sure that we kind of reduce them as much as possible, lowering the height of the graphics. So we're saving eight tons of um, carbon across the garden, which is amazing. But it'd be, it'd be great if there's more data available to make sort of informed decisions on other stuff. And yeah. I think that's what needs to be built. And slowly slowly will happen hopefully do you think that's something that the sustainability consultant working with a sustainability consultant could deliver because it seems to me that they are enabling a framework for decision making to take place and therefore they can help that standardization and that assistance i think it is yeah but i think it's you have to kind of build on the existing systems because Mm -hmm. it's not just concrete wooden you know, plaster. Yes. it's, it's much more fiddly and, and it's not, yeah, it just takes more work. Yeah. It takes a lot of time. And also, I mean, as much as we want everyone to be counting carbon and like mm-hmm. thinking about embodied carbon and emissions and those things, that is only one part of what sustainability is yeah. and should be. And, you know, I guess the, the task of dealing with the carbon and it is in itself so overwhelming and it's kind of become the thing that everyone's um, focused on, but it, that doesn't think about, or doesn't factor in uh, like where things come from, like sourcing, obviously the carbon to do with shipping is um, calculated, but it's not necessarily a conversation about whether or not you want to support a particular economy regionally close to you. Um, that just becomes a, a data point, you know, it was shipped a very far mm-hmm. distance or it wasn't shipped so far. And actually sometimes you might find that shipping is quite low in embodied carbon because overall the object itself is a very small fraction of the emissions usage of a, tra- you know, mm-hmm. of long distance shipping. Whereas road travel 
it's quite carbon heavy, but you might decide, or, you know, your client might have value systems that you support or that you're also interested in where you're interested in promoting local economies and thinking about the, I don't know, rural economies in in Britain or um, social value in places where there is industry, which isn't being supported. The other thing is, you know, we don't really necessarily calculate environmental impact in terms of like impact on landscape and flora and fauna and those things and certain processes again through because they have economies of scale and they're done they happen at such a large scale um might come out well in account one metric but maybe be very bad for some particular ecological system quite far away from us that we don't really understand mm-hmm. and that information is not transparent and very hard to get your whole like get your hands on and I guess that's where we've been focused a bit more recently in the office, you know, suddenly realizing that we might be promoting one thing and timber is the easiest one to talk through this problem with. You can promote timber and you can say, well, the timber's FSC and it's sustainably forested. But within sustainable forestry, there is a big range of what that really means and what the impact is of that model of forestry on the landscape and on biodiversity in that place. And it's only when you go to a monoculture plantation forest that you realise there isn't very much else that lives there, um, apart from deer and squirrels who are having a great time. <laughs> um, yeah, and I think it's that feels like a long way to try and bring all of those conversations into every exhibition design project and every construction project. But we also, I think, have to, and it's just kind of ploughing through the information that we have and, and asking better questions about where stuff comes from and, mm-hmm. and what product data certification you're given, because it's not always, uh, it's not always accurate. It's not always truthful and it's certainly not always transparent. Yeah. And the other thing is also the visitor, because I think the museums are also getting more interested in looking at where does the visitor come from? How do they travel? You know, that's, that's a lot of kind of carbon mm-hmm. as well. And then also what are the messages that the visitors are taking home? So particularly the natural history museum is trying to kind of change people's perspectives and trying to turn them into advocates for the planet and kind of make them think about stuff differently. And that can have an impact in the future, but how do you calculate that? Mm. So it's, it's, yeah, there's more to it than just punching in numbers. Yeah. That's interesting. I hadn't really thought about the footfall, but how many hundreds of Mm. thousands of people are coming in and out to do, to visit exhibitions. Yeah. Yeah, It's complicated. The (laughs) mantra should be design less for less people. <laughs> Not really. Yeah. Well, I mean, the, the shows themselves have, you know, a significant message and impact, mm. you know, yeah. I guess, you know, the tricky thing with these bigger institutions is they're balancing their finances. So they mm. have these shows, which are kind of crowd pleasers and going to pull lots of people in to finance, to fund the ones which are, um, maybe have a message or, you know, are talking about something which they want people to go away with and talk about at home and kind of have those ideas spread and kind of finding that balance, I think is really important because, um, yeah, ultimately, yeah. How many shows, how many shows a year do you need about all these different, you know, about topics which keep recurring? I think there are quite a lot of exhibitions which keep coming back around. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's a question we should all ask each other, isn't it? I mean, I'm a furniture designer by trade and I'm like, do we need another chair or can you just sit <laughs> on these old ones? Or, um, do we need, I don't know, yeah. a next, new exhibition every three months or is every half a year or every, yeah, exactly. every year enough? And, you just, we, we try and kind of not buy new clothes all the time and go to secondhand shops. It's like we, we have to rethink the entire system and how, you know, and how it's being used. Yeah. No, we're trying to do, well, are we? We are interested in 
taking on more refurbishment work, I think broadly speaking, the idea is really, or it should be, that we stop building at all mm. and think about the consequences of that and deal with that kind of infrastructurally and in a kind of systemic way. What does it mean um, for us not to make new buildings and just work with the ones we have? Primarily because at least in the UK, there are more bedrooms per capita now than there have ever been. So there's actually plenty of place for people to sleep. There are enough bedrooms. There's just, they're held in the hands of very few people. Mm. And so that's kind of infrastructural change, which is, I guess, way beyond rethinking way means of construction. It's thinking about uh, access to land and ownership. And um, I guess, broadly speaking, the kind of capitalist structures in which we operate. Um, but ultimately, I think if you follow the line of inquiry from like, well, we shouldn't make new things, we should use the old things. How do we make sure we use the old things? Oh, we have to divide them up more evenly. You kind of follow that thread and then you find yourself in a place where you're like, well, everything has to change mm-hmm. <laughs> and we have to do it all very quickly and everyone has to get involved and on board. And that feels like a really big, <laughs> a big undertaking, but and yeah. so we're kind of on the side with a pickaxe slowly <laughs> by hand trying to chip away. But that yeah. comes back to something I'd just like us to circle back to a little bit, which is about communication. If you are looking at the provenance of a material in such minute detail, are the institutions open to having those, spending the time having those conversations with you as the designer about how those decisions are made for material choice? I mean, I imagine that's quite, it's time consuming for you as the designer, but it's also time consuming in just communicating that with the people that you're working with. Yeah, it does get squeezed, of course. I mean, that's the problem, isn't it? Like in the past, exhibition design projects have always been like, everything is, you know, tightly scheduled and there's a certain amount of money and a certain amount of time. And none of that has really changed. But what has changed is that suddenly we need to have conversations around sustainability. We need to question what what materials we're using. We need to look at the end of use. And and it's but there's no more money for it. It costs more money. Everything has become more expensive in the world. Materials are crazy. Materials and labor are crazy expensive right now. So it's everything's being squeezed. And I think everyone really wants to try and do the right thing. But at some point, we all get incredibly squeezed. But so it's, 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 it's goodwill. The goodwill is there, I think, but it's not, it's not always easy. And I don't know how you feel about that. No, it's not easy at all. Right? <laughs> <laughs> it's very hard. Yeah. Yeah. We talk a lot about emotional labor quite a lot now <laughs> in the practice, because maybe that's the thing that we feel like we're spending a lot of, mm. um, of our emotional labor in trying to, um, either engage in a conversation with, um, somebody who completely uninterested or even people who have the will, maybe finding ways to make time and space for those conversations um, having conversations on a construction site with a contractor who just completely doesn't understand why you're pissing about slowing things down with these like ridiculous specifications of stuff they've never heard of. And you know, while well, we don't know how to use it, that'll probably cost you a lot more money. All of that is, um, we're just kind of banking that emotional time, <laughs> um, and, and working through figuring out ways of communicating really effectively, because I think there is a way of bringing people along with you and mm. kind of trying to find that, um, so that you can have those conversations mm-hmm. with a, a client about how something was made. Um, and maybe I think increasingly we think it's sort of about starting the project with that and saying, we're going to need more time to do this. This is something we believe is really important. We're going to schedule these conversations and it's going to be brought up at these points in time. Mm. And at the moment, architects have a 
kind of governing set of stages set mm-hmm. by the professional body that you go through. And I think, you know, we could kind of rethink those and talk about how you start each one with talking about material sourcing and specification and, you know, well, we're going to do a project with you, but our starting point is going to be to not build anything new and to refurbish what there is. And then our second pr- principle is going to be, we're going to try and work with stuff which uh, is plant-based because it's going to sequester carbon and then sort of declare those values at the beginning and kind of have a dialogue as you go. Um, but yeah, it's in, it is incredibly difficult. I'm, I'm tendering for a project at the moment for um, two major exhibitions at a, at a, a big museum. And the brief is for the two projects um, as, as one tender, which is the first time that I've been invited to do something like that because the, the one that I did at the Natural History Museum, there were two different tenders, but just mm. happened to get them. And I think it's really interesting that thinking because they're obviously realizing that um, if you get the same designer to design two consecutive shows and you ask them to kind of design something that can be like reconfigured and, and repurposed, and then you also give the contract to one construction company who's on board with yeah. kind of making sure there's waste is designed out in the construction and in the kind of turnaround of the exhibitions. So I think that's that's a really interesting yeah, uh, move forward. And it's a, it's an experiment. It's an experiment for the institution, for the constructor, for, for me. But anyone else who's tendering and might be winning it. <laughs> but um, yeah, I think it's really positive. But it's also really challenging because these tenders take a lot of work and suddenly you're not just tendering for one job or you're tendering for two jobs, plus the puzzle of making it sustainable and kind of reconfigurable. And design between the two of them. Yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. And and it's I don't think it's more time than usually for one exhibition tender. So it's like, ah. You know, that's, that's, and maybe this is the emotional labor or is yeah. it, or is it the real labor? I don't know. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, but, but, yeah. both, I think. Yeah. yeah. But it sort of depends. I think when you, when you start having conversations, you know, with the people you're working with mm. and the contractor who's appointed, you know, if they bought into the project at the beginning, that's really great. Mm. Um, but if they haven't, that's where you spend a lot of your kind of, uh, bonus time, <laughs> you know, like this project I was talking about with it, we're doing in Scotland, um, the contractor maybe has worked with lots of heritage skills. So when we talk about why you might use lime mortar instead of cement mortar, they're like, of course, that's what you do because mm-hmm. this is a traditional building. So we will use traditional lime. But when you say, actually, we don't want to use cement, we want to use this alternative thing, which is going to go in the foundations and will also work, but maybe you have to procure it more carefully in advance. Mm-hmm. They're not interested. Mm-hmm. And they say, well, that's going to cost you £4,000 a tonne. And the other one costs 135 pounds a ton. So what do you choose? Mm. And at that point you haven't got enough time to kind of go around to the houses and source things. And maybe that's where, that's the kind of labor I'm talking about where yeah. suddenly you do, do, you do that work because you want to prove a point, mm. but also, you know, you have a principle that you're trying to keep to. Um, yeah, difficult. Yeah, it's difficult. Um, but every time you work with a contractor or a consultant, I think you kind of make inroads. Um, like we did this project in Somerset, which was a, a building made of hempcrete blocks. And the contractor we work with there at the beginning, I think, was maybe not particularly impressed with some of the things we'd specified and the way we'd designed some stuff. He may not have been impressed with the design at the end either. I don't know. I never asked him. But the materials they came on board with and then they started to say, oh, well, you don't want, I guess you don't want this thing. So we found you this other one. Is that good? And you'd be like, yeah, that, actually, that is quite good. Mm. Yeah. Um, and it was really nice because they, they priced working with a hempcrete at the beginning, like working with stone 
So they priced it like stone masonry. So oh it would cost, God. cost an arm and a leg. Yeah. Um, and in the end, it just cost a leg. And it was <laughs> explained. You can, Small you, wins. you can run it. Exactly. You can put it up to a bandsaw. It's very easy. And, um, so I think there's like lots of potential in these conversations. I, I you know, I hope you win this tender, but it's really, they're really nice when you have them and you kind of bring people with you. Yeah. Now I've been also talking a bit, I keep kind of trying to get meetings with museums and contractors and all sorts of people to just sort of find out more about how we can do this all together. And I was speaking to one sort of um, exhibition contractor and he, he said to me like, listen, the museums have to stop giving out single contracts. They have to make it one or two or three exhibitions in a row to improve things. And so I, that, that was maybe a year ago that I had that conversation. Mm. So I was delighted to see that that's what's that's happening now. So because they, you know. Why, why, from the contractor's perspective, what was it, what was their kind of, why were they pushing for that, do you think? I think it's just makes, makes reuse easier. You know, you, you, you don't really want to reuse someone else's um, build. It's mm. more expensive. I mean, it's really easy to just chuck everything in the skip. Um, but if you've built it yourself, you know how it's been constructed. You can already make sure that it's easier to disassemble or that you're already thinking about oh, how next for the next exhibition, you know, we're building that kind of walling. So let's think about it more, you know, intelligently. I mean, they save money by reusing the material um, and saving, you know, carbon. It's more intelligent that way. Well, they really need all these different museums and galleries as a kind of central depot. Mm, exactly. Where all the stuff goes back and all the stuff yeah. comes out. Because, yeah, I think there's so much material which kind of circulates between, in theory could be circulating yeah. between these shows, but actually isn't. Um, or at least if there was a kind of data register, you know, in October, this show is coming down, this volume of materials is going to become available yeah. and people maybe don't, maybe they bid for it. Maybe it just, you know, it's a kind of free cycle system, but... Mm. You know, that in itself is a project and it'd be super amazing and effective thing, but they kind of all need to band together. Yeah. But where you put the stuff and how long it's put there for in a very expensive city like London is, um, is a real question. Yeah, it's really tricky. Um, I've got a few friends who are theatre designers and the theatre industry is using this green book for design, which is a kind of initiative to kind of make sure that Theatre is less wasteful because, I mean, theatres are worse than exhibitions. There's sometimes two weeks, three weeks. It's really quick turnaround. And um, so I think that the exhibition world can learn quite a lot from them. And um, a friend of mine is doing shows for the National Theatre and she said now they've got a sort of system of flattage. So the flat walls are designed of a certain width and then they're being stored. I mean, they've got in-house workshops, which obviously makes that much more yeah. easy because that you've got the storage sorted. But so as a designer, you kind of think in those dimensions and you can maybe add a little to make yours mm. work. But there is a sort of system nice. and a sort of restraint. And I think that restraint is something that we need across the mm. board, especially yeah. for temporary kind of builds. Yeah. I think it's fantastic that you've just said that, that we can learn from other sectors because that's yeah. really what designer's voice is for so that people wherever they work within design can benefit from conversations between people that work in, in quite different areas or specialities um, it can all it can all be used by everybody and um, so I think that's perfect <laughs> um, I'm interested in from an exhibition design point of view whether the sustainable nature of the exhibition itself needs to be communicated to the audience or not? I think so. I mean, I, in fact, when I went to see Waste Age, I was really keen to read about it because I knew that that had been going on and then I couldn't find it. And I don't know whether it's been, and I, and I think I asked 
um, like Justin mm-hmm. asked him like, oh, I, I couldn't see it. And he's like, oh, you yeah, know, it was there, but we were going to make a bigger thing out of it and we ran out of space. I can't remember. You can yeah. tell me what the truth is. <laughs> yeah. I was like, oh, that was a real miss because the whole exhibition was about waste age. And I think the exhibition design was clearly an important part of that. And yeah. the information was just not loud enough or yeah. maybe I'm too blind. I'm not sure. No, I don't think that's, I'm not sure you're not too blind. <laughs> I, I think, um, yeah, I think he's right. Justin um, was talking about the, the process of developing that exhibition. And I think ultimately there was a lot of information that was being kind of trying to be held within the space. And there were like hundreds of objects, hundreds Mm. and hundreds of objects. I think in the end, it was a question of um, kind of holding people's focus, Mm. but I think it would have been really great. I think we would have really valued um, there being more space to talk about the material palette and choices. I appreciate now that they've been doing this work with urge to do a kind of retrospective, Mm. which is kind of getting disseminated because I think that is, that will do part of that work. And when we always talk about the project, that's the lens through which we talk about it. And actually often we have kind of um, counter criticism put to us, which is that uh, we never talk about our design work as designers because we're always talking about this kind of, it's embodied carbon or it's material sourcing or whatever. Um, And we say, well, no no one else is. (laughs) Um, And that's interesting to us right now. And so maybe we kind of um, tend not to talk about things through like an aesthetic lens, although ultimately the choices we made for the wastage were driven by aesthetics as well, maybe as much. It's kind of like hard. To, I didn't have a metric for that in the pyramid and in, in the table. Mm. Beautiful, <laughs> beautiful points. Um, but yeah, I think there's a, definitely a role in sharing that with um, with people who go to shows and exhibitions. I think it's important, you know, that you understand why things are designed in a certain way, what's driving them. I think people are interested. I think it's not talked about enough. You know, you understand when you buy food, people are really aware of their kind of choices around food in terms of like air miles and shipping and sourcing and seasonality. Um, and actually it's very similar with design work. I think if you can frame your choices in exactly the same way. Um, but we're not cultured into thinking about things like that, things you buy and things you live in, mm. places you visit. Um, all the same decision-making is involved Um and I think, you know, every time you share information around a project and it's sourcing and design, you kind of help build that culture, mm. um, a kind of critical culture, which will make other institutions or maybe corporate corporations that aren't interested in change. I mean, it will slowly force people to change, maybe not because they want to, but because they have to. Yeah. And I think it makes also people think about stuff a bit more. I mean, even I find quite often when people outside of design ask me what I'm doing, I say, I do exhibition design. I don't even know what that is. So they, they think, oh, so you create, I'm like, no. And then, you know, when you go in an exhibition, there's walls and things and someone arranges stuff. And so I think people aren't even aware that there is, you know, there is something involved in creating that experience. Mm-hmm. Never mind what's the impact of the decisions for creating this experience. So yeah. I think there's a, definitely a place for going, this is what we've done. This is what we've tried. This is where we kind of succeeded. This mm-hmm. is where we failed. You know, it's like an honest Mm-hmm. you know, conversation around all of this. Is there yeah. any accreditation or certification you can um, apply for, for exhibition design that would help communicate the sustainable standard that you've reached? I don't think so. Are you aware of anything? No, no. I, it's one of the metrics which is used, I mean, in terms of certification, not at all that I know. You can calculate embodied carbon by square meter. I imagine you could do that for exhibition designs. Yes, yeah. Yeah, as a kind of principal thing and kind of from ground up to ceiling, including all the light fittings and everything. People start to talk about that as a metric, as a shorthand now. I think it's becoming more commonly accepted. 
Um, but ultimately it goes back to that thing you said about standards. I think there aren't standards. What is included and how it's calculated in every particular field like exhibition design, I think it isn't maybe necessarily okay. agreed. Um, and what certification you could possibly get? I have no idea. I don't know. Maybe it's a necessary. I just wondered, sometimes mm. it's a tool to communicate to the mm. visitor that you've, this is that you've reached that. Yeah. Sustainable exhibition design. Yeah. 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 Yeah, I think we're a long way away from that. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. But yeah. I mean, I, yeah, I I also feel like these certification systems, like we engage with those processes a lot at, at the office, you know, thinking about um, standardization and and how you demonstrate, I suppose, that things are good because ultimately people look for those badges and labels. But there are so many failings within those certification systems. It's such a kind of, um, yeah, such a tricky subject to get into, I think, you know, as much as you could say it's been certified, you can also say, well, this stuff came from here, it was made in this way, and it's made of this. Mm. And I think that's very tangible information. I think people, you know, I, I think in that way. I'm like, oh, where did it come from? Where did you make it from? Mm. What did you glue it together with? Where's that glue from? Mm. Um, and I think that's also, in, I mean, I'm, I'm an architect. I find that stuff interesting. But I think it's generally sometimes interesting to other people. Mm. <laughs> it would be fantastic if we finished our conversation today before we move on to the rest of our day. Um, maybe to think about what the most positive next step might be. What would you be really pleased to see in regards to sustainable exhibition design? Okay. So I, I, I think it would be really great if there was a something like a QS for sustainability on the project team. And so that it's it's not just um, maybe the designers trying to kind of scrumble around, trying to make decisions and, you know, research things on the hoof. Um, but, but someone that's part of the team that keeps track of everything and helps you throughout the design stages to make the right decisions. I think that'd be really positive. Yeah. I mean, I can totally see the value in that person in the design team. Actually, sometimes we have uh, consultants in our design teams who say, or services consultants say, well, that's not really our job. You know, like we don't do that counting work, you know. Um, but I also think the thing that you were talking about earlier, but kind of um, different ways of procuring design work, uh, it's quite an exciting idea. I think when we find if we're ever tendering for work and um, the bids are a little bit more innovative than they have been in the past, it's very exciting when someone is thinking about the environmental impact of the project itself, but also the impact on the organization, on the designer, on the labor of the person who's working, um, of these different ways of procuring things. So I think setting out like good best practice procurement for design work is really important, but also for contractors, like there are contractors who, um, have worked with, in these ways before, I think supporting those contractors, um, building a kind of knowledge base of kind of reuse with certain, um, different firms is really useful. Um, but also setting out the beginning, like this value is really important to us. If it's going to cost you more money to do it in this way, just factor it in from the beginning, factor it into your program. And then maybe it won't be so stressful when we'll all have a lovely time. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you so much, Gitta and Samat for letting us record your conversation and listen in and learn from all of your expertise it's been such an enjoyable afternoon thank you so much thank you thank you so much yeah and if you have enjoyed our conversation today please could you share this episode with your friends and colleagues and you can find much more information about designers voice over on instagram at designers voice thank you so much Designer's Voice has been presented and produced by me, Alice Bryan. 
and it has been filmed and edited by super talented Daniel Buddha. And we would like to thank all of the guests that have joined us. And they're the people that have absolutely made this series possible by so generously sharing their time and their expertise. And we would like to thank you, our listener. Thank you for being here. Thank you for sharing and subscribing. We look forward to seeing you again soon. Bye-bye.